0: We've started a new preaching series, uh, focused on investigating Jesus through his relationships with others in the Gospels. And one of the things that comes through very clearly in the Gospel accounts is that Jesus engaged with an extraordinarily diverse set of people. Last week we considered two people who came to Jesus in a time of great need. A synagogue ruler whose daughter was dying and, and a suffering poor woman. And they revealed to us uh, the kind of faith that Jesus invited people to place in him. We said that this, this uh, we said last week that this faith is, is not only believing that Jesus is the Son of God, but a, a receiving and resting on him alone for salvation. And Uh, We saw that for powerless and and needy people, Jesus always stands ready to help and to heal and and to save. Well, today, we're looking at Jesus' relationship with a very different kind of person. Uh, Instead of being powerless, the young man in our gospel account today is very privileged. He's young, he's wealthy, he's moral, and he's motivated. But when he was invited by Jesus to become a disciple, to come and follow him, the young man goes away. This is pretty shocking, given what usually happens when Jesus issues this call to someone in the Gospels, come and follow me. They usually leave everything immediately and join him. But that's not what happens here. So it's very important that we understand what is going on in Jesus' relationship with this privileged young man. The first thing to notice is what motivates this man to come to Jesus in the first place. He comes to Jesus with respect and with a question that was important to him. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, I want to spend some time on this question because... It would seem like a question that's very unfamiliar or or foreign to us today. I I have never had someone come up to me as a pastor and ask me a question uh, quite like this one. But if we dig into it, I think you'll see that what the man is asking is actually very relevant to us. So let me explain. What, What the man is asking is really very simple. He's asking Jesus whether or not He's on track. Is he on track to be successful in his life? Is he on track to reach his goal? To to frame the question in a more contemporary way, it might be like some of you asking, am I on track to graduate? Have I fulfilled the right number of credits? Or, Or others of you might be asking, Am I on track with my retirement savings? Have I done everything that I need to do? For this young man who who comes to Jesus, though, it's not just about doing what he needs to do for this life to be successful. He 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 has his eyes set on a, a larger goal. Has he done everything he needs to do to gain eternal life? To participate in God's eternal kingdom? He wants to know if he's getting closer. So Jesus points him to things he already would have known, God's commandments for guidance, especially the the second table of the law, the commandments about how you treat other people. And then in verse 20, we discover the crux of the issue. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Here's a question to which we can all relate. The man asks, What's missing? What do I still lack? I've been doing everything right, and it still feels like something is missing. He's successful and respected. He's a good person. He's a good neighbor and yet he feels like something is missing. He's not satisfied. This young man reminds me of a friend of mine from New York named Juan. Juan grew up in a wealthy family in Colombia, South America, and from a very young age, he was a very talented tennis player. By the age of 12, he was a national tennis champion. But this wasn't the only thing that he was good at. He was also a top student in his class and a gifted singer. But it was tennis that brought him to the United States on his sports scholarship. And he did well. Uh, he traveled the country, he even came here to the, the UW to play in the tennis stadium. Uh, but over the course of his college career, he began to feel like something was missing. So, he stopped spending all of his time on tennis, and he decided to major in electrical engineering. After graduation, he was hired by an American multinational company to work in Colombia. By the age of 25, he'd become a manager, and he had a bright future in the company. He was doing very well, but once again, he felt like something was missing. Externally, he was the picture of success, but internally, He was a mess. He was angry, exhausted, and lonely. So he decided that he was unhappy uh, because he was really meant to be an artist. You remember he also excelled at, at singing? And so on his 25th job, or 25th birthday, he quit his job to pursue a life as an opera singer. And as with everything else, he worked very hard, and he did well. He was uh, declared the young Pavarotti of Colombia. Pavarotti himself bestowed that title on him at a competition. And he drew large audiences in the audience, so much so that he decided to, to move to New York City to continue his opera career. And he worked hard to succeed in New York. But within a short amount of time, his life uh, completely fell apart. Uh, Throughout his life, he'd always been plagued by ulcers. And now, uh, his body turned against him uh, after being pushed so hard for so many years. And he found himself in a hospital bed with a tube stuck down his esophagus. He, He was broke, he was broken, he was considering suicide. And he realized that his search for whatever was missing in his life had reached a dead end. Now, most of us don't go to the kinds of extremes that my friend Juan did. But we all know what it's like to ask the question, what's missing? You work really hard to achieve some goal, to graduate from high school or college, or achieve some career milestone, or just get to some place in your life that you've always dreamed about. And once you get there for a while, maybe a few days or weeks, you have a sense of satisfaction. You've made it. But then you begin to wonder, is there more to life than this? The 17th century philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal noticed this dynamic in his own life, and he wrote the following about this sense of craving and searching. What else does this craving proclaim but that there once was in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. The young man in our text today came to Jesus looking for answers. He was spiritually serious. He'd led a moral life. On the outside, everything looked good, but he senses that something was still missing. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus answers his question in verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There are two ways of understanding what Jesus says here. On the one hand, he might be saying that all Christians are called to a life of poverty and should sell their possessions to follow Jesus. Or on the other hand, he, he might be saying to this one Christian, this young man, that he was called to a life of poverty to become Jesus' followers. And this is the question people have often wrestled with in this text. Is this command meant for all Christians or only for the young man? I, w- I want you to see today two things. First, that there are some good reasons for thinking that Jesus was speaking specifically to this young man. But second, this does not make Jesus' words any easier for the rest of us. Let me show you what I mean. First, why do I think Jesus was speaking specifically to this young man? For one thing, uh, we're not told in the Gospels that Jesus said this kind of thing regularly. You know, he often warns about the dangers of trusting in wealth, but he didn't command anyone else to sell everything that they have. Uh, even the disciples who were fishermen, who left everything to follow Jesus, like Peter, Andrew, James, John, all of them still seem to have their boats and their fishing tackle to go back to after Jesus' death. Uh, we know that Peter still had a house in Capernaum because it's mentioned in Matthew 8. In, in Luke 8, A number of wealthy women are mentioned uh, who provide for Jesus out of their means. Uh, Another wealthy disciple, Zacchaeus, gives away a substantial amount of his wealth, half of it, but not all of it. So my point is that that Jesus does appear to be challenging uh, the young man in a special way, uh, that he didn't challenge every one of his disciples. But Jesus' goal for the young man was not just that he become poor, but that he become a disciple. That was the goal. Discipleship. Go sell what you possess, and then come follow me. The point was not just that the young man give up his wealth as some great act of sacrifice for its own sake, but that he would give up anything that would be an impediment to his following Jesus. And becoming his disciple. Jesus commanded him to sell his possessions as a means to something better, to obtain real treasure, treasure in heaven. He wanted him to become a disciple. And this is why what Jesus says here is still very challenging for us all, no matter what our spiritual condition. Jesus' goal for every one of us is that we follow him in a life of dedicated discipleship. And in order to be a disciple of Jesus, you must be willing to give up your attachment to any other Savior thing in your life. This is going to look different for every single one of us, but Jesus is clear that following Him, following him will require this kind of sacrifice. We must give up looking to any created thing that we can control and achieve and instead receive and rest on him. I believe that this pattern has something important to teach us about how uh, discipleship problems arise, not just how the, the life of discipleship begins, but how discipleship problems arise in the life of us as Christians and in the life of the church. Every year, around Martin Luther King Day, I read uh, Dr. King's incredible letter from Birmingham jail. And this week, as I read it, I was especially struck by his critique of the white church in his day. As you probably know, King was arrested in Birmingham for his participation in a nonviolent march on Good Friday, April 12, 1963. He and those who were with him were disobeying a judge's injunction against parading, any parading, demonstrating, boycotting, trespassing, or picketing in Birmingham. Uh, The judge's order was clearly meant to keep the black community from drawing attention to their needs in any way. And so King was arrested, and while he was in jail, someone smuggled in a newspaper that contained a statement by eight white Alabama clergyman speaking against King and his methods. And this is what inspired King to write his letter in response. And in the letter, King praises some things that a few white church leaders have done well, and then he says this, and this is included in the reflections page in the bulletin. Uh, he, He wrote, But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who is nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the court of life shall lengthen. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. I'll let you read the rest of that quote later. I encourage you to read the whole letter. But what I want you to notice here is how King holds together both his love for the church as the body of Christ and his deep disappointment over its failures. This is a perennial problem and, and, and one that we still struggle with today. But I think that the story of the rich young man can help us understand the failure of the church and point us toward a solution. This man's problem is is not that he is disobedient or immoral in any way. As we've said, he's outwardly a good person. But something stands in the way of his becoming a disciple of Jesus and obeying him from the heart his possessions are ultimately more valuable to him than a relationship with Jesus. This is what is always the case when we see Christians in the church or Christian leaders who fall short in their public witness or commitment to Christ. Something besides Jesus has become more motivating or more valuable than a love for him as Savior and Lord. In the same way, this is what Dr. King was saying to the white church in 1963. Fear and an unwillingness to sacrifice for their black brothers and sisters had blemished and scarred the body of Christ. Whether it was idolatry of money or power, there was something that prevented them from following Jesus through loving their black brothers and sisters. How should we respond? when this happens. Let's take a look at how Jesus responds to the young man who goes away sorrowful. Notice that Jesus does let him go. He speaks the truth. He makes the invitation clear. And then he lets this young man make his own decision. I see Jesus here is like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Just as the father in that parable lets his son go into the far country, Jesus lets this man go, and he tells his disciples that it's a difficult situation. He said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What is the solution for discipleship failures in ourselves or in others? The solution is not just to do better. That's where we often want to go, to just push and morally challenge, but that's like the camel going through the eye of a needle. Remember, this young man is, so, is already so good in, in so many ways. Instead, what is needed is a transformation of the heart. Something only God can do so that we no longer rely on our own goodness, but instead rely on Christ's goodness for us. The Bible's word for this kind of heart transformation is repentance. Last week, we talked about faith as receiving and resting on Christ. A faith and repentance are like two sides of the same coin. They always go together. When we repent, we turn away from other sources of satisfaction in order to turn toward Jesus. In repentance, we give up our own self reliance and instead pursue a wholehearted reliance on Christ. As we heard in our call to confession today from Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. When we repent, we give up those things in our life that we find more beautiful and more motivating than our love for Jesus. If we say that we love him, while also clinging to any created thing, we make it into an idol, whether it's wealth or comfort, status, success, or freedom. What we're doing is we're saying to God, what I really need is for you to give me something besides yourself. But the gospel declares that God has already given us everything in the person and work of Jesus so that we might enjoy union and communion with him. When you see the depth of his love and his grace, then what seems impossible becomes possible. You will gladly obey and give up your greatest treasure in order to pursue fellowship with him. What's more, your obedience in other areas of your, of your life that may seem impossible to you now, whether it's with regard to money or sex or power, that when you see the fullness of God's love and his grace for you in Christ, you will also begin to hear Jesus' commands differently because you'll no longer see them as a threat but as a way to grow closer to him. Earlier, I told the story of my tennis star, engineer, opera singer friend, Juan, and how he ended up in a hospital in New Jersey with bleeding ulcers. Uh, He was desperate and alone, uh, but shortly before going into the hospital, he had met some Christians associated with a church in downtown Manhattan. Uh, They heard that he was in the hospital, and they stepped in to care for him in, in a remarkable way. Over the course of the next year, they gave him a place to live, food, clothing, medication, and friendship. They showed him a kindness that wasn't dependent on his achievements or his reputation. And they told him about this Jesus who loved him and even died for him. Juan placed his trust in Christ, and eventually he married uh, one of the women who cared for him during this time. He became a new person, Uh, He gave up the pursuit of a life of fame. He got a regular job and started a family. He decided that he would rather have Jesus than anything else in the world. We don't know what happened ultimately to the young man who walked away from Jesus. I like to think that he found his way back eventually. But the good news... Is that when you're ready to give up your self sufficiency and come to Him with only your need for grace, He always stands ready to receive you? He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we pray today for your grace. Please forgive us for all the ways in which we seek satisfaction apart from you. Help us to see Jesus and his love more clearly so that we might have the courage to follow him and a willing heart to give up anything in order to be his disciple. By your spirit, would you make us the people that you call us to be so that we might be faithful and fruitful for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.